0: I would like to introduce our first speaker. I think um, he is a very supremely renowned academic in nursing. I think nobody does know uh, his name. Um, He is Professor Roger Watson, who is a British um, academic. He is the um, academic dean at the School of Nursing Southwest uh, Medical University, China and also a professor of nursing at the Heritage Institute of Higher Education Hong Kong and he was also a professor of um, nursing at the School of Health. He is currently um, um, the editor-in-chief of nurse education in practice and an editorial board member of the Wiki Journal of Medicine he introduced uh, in his talk yesterday in the seminar and Professor Watson was also the founding chair of the Lancet uh, Commission Nursing, and a founding member of Global Advisory Group for Future of Nursing. Professor Watson was also elected um, a Vice President of National Conference of University Professors in 2020 and became President in 2022 until 2024. Um, he is, of course, a registered nurse and holds um, a Bachelor of Science in Biological Sciences from the University of Edinburgh and a um, um, PhD in biochemistry from the University of Sheffield. Previously, he was uh, the editor, of, of, of course, his speech is also very famous in chief of the Journal of Clinical Nursing and the Journal of Advanced Nursing, and founding um, editor of Nursing Open. Professor Watson frequently contributes to uh, the Times Higher Education, the conversations he mentioned yesterday too, and the um, um, Salisbury Review and the European conservative and um, um, daily skeptic. Professor Watson is also a fellow of the Royal College of Nursing at the American Academy of Nursing since 20, 20, uh, 2007, and the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh since um, um, 2014, and a fellow of Higher Education Academy, a fellow of Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland, Faculty of Nursing and Midwifery. He is also a member of the Academia um, Europea, was also a, a formerly um, um, a fellow of the Royal Society of Biology. Um, so um, he, in, in uh, 2021, Professor Watson was also awarded the, the, the honorary degree of doctoral uh, honoris causa by the University of Malibu. And Professor Watson published basically more than 540 articles to the latest figures and cited by almost 10,000 times and with a very high index sector, very close to five uh, of 50. So uh, it is really our pleasure to listen to Professor Watson's uh, um, um, sharing with us. His topic is evidence-based practice in healthcare. Uh,
1: Professor Watson, please. All right. Well, thank you very much, Rick. Um, I'm assuming I can use this microphone. You can hear me. That's good. The next issue is the PowerPoints. <laughs> technical help is on the way. I'm going to record my uh, presentation in case of legal proceedings. Uh, it's the... Oh, it's, not, it's not there. It's Eliza. Where's my PowerPoint? <laughs> 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 I, I, do have a, I do have a backup copy with me, so don't worry. Okay. Just... Uh, Talk amongst yourselves for a few minutes.
0: Yeah.
1: Nothing ever goes wrong with PowerPoints yeah. at conferences, does it? They always work perfectly.
0: Guess, guess, guess PowerPoints. Yeah. No, yeah, that's no, not no. me, no. no. Oh, uh, <laughs> oh, maybe in the, in the
1: email. Uh, right. I, I can get. I've got a backup copy. Let me get it.
0: You, you got it? Yeah.
1: yeah. I'm a great believer in the philosophy of belt and braces. Uh, whichever one it is, and it's uh, uh, EBP. That's the one. Okay. I think we're it, off. Thank you very much. I'll just keep this open. And um, oh, there's a changer there. That's excellent. So which is that? That's forward, and that's back. Forward yeah. and back. That's yeah. great. Thank you very much indeed. Okay, I don't need that. Okay. Thank you. Uh, we've only lost a, a couple of minutes in time. Hopefully, I won't uh, take us over time too much. So, see, I'm, I'm recording this. I like to record my talks just in case people ask me questions afterwards and i don't normally have any kind of script with me but i'm going to try and stick to time so that should keep me keep me to time first of all it's a huge delight to be back in hong kong after uh, four years of uh, international insanity during the the COVID years um, thankfully that's over now i hope although people keep trying to resurrect it and um, it's just great to be back and thank you very much and no better place to come back to first of all than to uh, see my old colleague and old friend sally at Dunboyne College, my first visit here, in fact, which I find extraordinary, given I've been associated in one way or another for many years. Uh, so, thank you to Sally and to the organising committee and to Lorna and to everyone who's uh, played a part in getting me here. Hardly a day has passed without an email from the organising committee to tell me where to be, when, what I was eating, and when, and uh, to make sure I, I'd set my I'd set my PowerPoints in time. But that didn't work. So, <laughs> anyway. Good, so let's get going. When I was asked to address the issue of evidence based practice, I have to say, you might find it surprising. My heart sank slightly because this is actually one of my sort of least favourite topics. Not because I don't believe in evidence for health uh, practice. But because it's become a kind of um, a throwaway phrase, a mantra almost, and it's uh, the way certainly in in my country that evidence-based practice is implemented has little to do with evidence. Uh, It's usually to do with political pressure, pressure groups, economics and uh, political necessities rather than anything. We don't have time to go into examples, uh, but people can ask me afterwards if they want to. And the last thing I'd want to do is to undermine the concept of evidence-based practice, but I'm going to, uh, going to be quite critical of, of one or two things that have happened recently during the COVID years, uh, and I can see looking around the audience that I'm probably going to upset one or two people here. Uh, I hope the doors are open so I can make a run for it at the end, uh, but I'm well known for upsetting people. So in terms of evidence-based practice, let's get on with it. I've got half an hour until five past the hour. We used to be certain about so many things, certainly when I started nursing and when I was young, we used to be f- certain about things like bloodletting, not, not, not in my time, I hesitate, uh, I, I hasten to add, but you know, in years gone by, bloodletting was the way you dealt with diseases and uh, you know, letting people bleed and putting leeches all over them. I know leeches are used for other things now, but it's not bloodletting. Uh, grommets for glue ear, that, where did that go? Nearly all my children have got grommets. Uh, they're old enough to have them doesn't they don't do it anymore in my country episiotomy is routinely for for uh, for, for for midwifery for for, for uh, delivery i know they're still used uh, occasionally but that was the that was the the secret to, to good birth lignocaine to prevent cardiac arrest post heart attack uh, egg white and oxygen to heal pressure sores that was a big one when i was a lad uh, where did that go? Uh, you know and 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 vigorous rubbing of the buttocks you know with alcohol to prevent pressure sores when in fact it was doing exactly the opposite and breaking down the the microcirculation. so uh, evidence as such changes constantly. Uh, these things of course weren't really based on evidence, they were based on authority and uh, and word of mouth, but um, even so uh, we've, we have definitely entered the age of evidence generation through uh, methods that I'm going to mention Uh, but are we really paying attention to that evidence are we really using it and my uh, hypothesis for the next half hour at least is if we were we wouldn't be doing some of the things that we're doing now we certainly wouldn't be doing some of the things that we did over the last uh, uh, three or four years certainly the, the, the COVID years Uh, And I'll just put my cards right on the table now. I've been exceedingly critical of the COVID narrative all the way through. I don't want you to be in any doubt about that. Um, So, uh, And I know that not everyone agrees with me. That's great. That's fine. I'm not here to be agreed with. Uh, I'm here to... uh, here to try and stimulate some discussion about, about things. We won't have time for questions here today but uh, my email is always available for insults and questions afterwards. So what is what is evidence? Well evidence is various things. Uh, evidence, uh, a thing that helps, uh, is helpful in forming a conclusion or a judgment certainly that's what evidence within health, health practice is. is, is. Uh, it helps us to make decisions, it doesn't make the decisions for us. Uh, Evidence tends to prove or disprove something—a ground for belief or proof. Well, um, it is difficult to prove things in healthcare, as we as we as we all know, and for reasons that uh, you know that for reasons that I'll, that I'll explain. Uh, this tends not to be a very accurate uh, description of how we use evidence in healthcare, but it's part of the way there. Uh, something that makes plain or clear an indication or a sign, well, the best evidence should do that. But as I say, evidence keeps changing. What's evidence one day isn't necessarily evidence the next. We uh, were bombarded in the newspapers in the UK with um, one day drinking lots of red wine uh, staves off dementia. So I start drinking lots of red wine only to see the next day that it gives you dementia. You know, and, and you, this sort of toing and froing uh, ing in the newspapers uh, and it really confuses lay people. It also confuses health professionals. So evidence keeps changing, chopping and changing. Why can't we, why can't we have evidence? Why can't we know what to do? And we simply don't, we never do, and it's, uh, it's, oops, sorry, we're going the wrong way. Okay, so what counts as evidence? Well, many things count as evidence, and I don't have time today to go into all the different possibilities for evidence. Uh, I believe, believe, as a quantitative scientist, that almost anything that we can count epidemiologically or or from, from trials or from rigorous experiments and testing hypotheses can be used as evidence. Uh, that includes epidemiological work and surveys, not just randomised controlled trials, but of course we have a, a hierarchy of evidence. And I'm not trying to write off qualitative research at all for the qualitative researchers present. I think qualitative research doesn't provide evidence as such, but it provides insight, and that's very important as well. So I think the two are complementary. So I'm not saying that quantitative good, qualitative bad, but uh, the, the, you know, we, we tend to move towards testable hypotheses for, um, for, for for evidence uh, we don't need evidence uh, you know, sorry the outcome of a systematic inquiry we don't need to, to use evidence for everything, we tend to overdo it sometimes. Sometimes we know the answer to things; we don't need to test parachutes using randomised control trials because we know we know that they, they work. There was a spoof. This is from a spoof paper in the British Medical Journal one Christmas. Sadly, the British Medical Journal's lost its sense of humour and it doesn't do these spoof papers anymore. But I loved it uh, anyway. So, um, and we're very familiar. I'm sure everyone in the room is familiar with the the levels of evidence, all of these in one way or another, apart from editorials and expert opinion, all the rest of these are to some extent experimental but of course the the queen of the experimental methods or king, whatever you like, are the randomized controlled trials, particularly double-blind randomized controlled trials. Um, They're at the top of the experimental hierarchy and they've been even suppressed these days by systematic reviewing and say good systematic reviews are really where we tend to look evidence these days uh, and and i'm sure many people are involved in that in in, in the room so again back to what is evidence evidence only helps us to make a decision it doesn't actually make the decision for us Uh, and why is that Uh, well it's for various reasons because evidence is not clear-cut ever uh, not as clear-cut as we think it is ever uh, but we also suffer from confirmation bias we tend always to process things and interpret them based on pre-existing beliefs. I'm as guilty of that as anyone and, and, and that's why we need independent sources of evidence. We tend uh, very humanly to ignore what doesn't agree with what's going on in our mind and to look for evidence that, that, that agrees, but we do have to be open uh, to challenge every now and again. The other thing that uh, gets in the way of evidence and of course as the reason for systematic reviewing, and particularly for meta-analysis, is the concept of regression to the mean. Uh, one day, uh, you know, well, I won't go into the concept of regression to the mean in any detail, but suffice to say, you know, that one day drug X works for, for, a, for a disease, next day it doesn't seem to work for a disease, depending on the clinical trial. Uh, just like red wine cures dementia one day and gives you dementia the next, I'm still working on that experiment. I'll give you the outcome, of <laughs> course. But uh, this is why we use uh, this is why we use forest plots when we're plotting uh, the results of meta-analysis. And you know, you all know how these work: the line of no effect in the middle, with the uh, control at one side and favouring the intervention, which happens to be a drug, on the, on the other side. But you can see that there are points on both sides of that of that uh, of that line of no effect some which favor the controls one which really favors the control way up there and one which really favors the drug all the rest are around the line you know that's regression to the mean uh, we, 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 we can't uh, we can't base our decisions on just one thing uh, one experiment we've really got to wait and of course, who say who knows what's going to happen in the future? We don't know how things work stochastically with any of these graphs. It may the, the line may move I- either way as evidence accumulates. So evidence is a moving a moving target. Uh, but we've got to work with the best available evidence that we have at one time to be accountable and to be legal professionals. So we get torn, you know, we get torn between different ways of, of, of working, ways of thinking and different aspects of of evidence. So we need to turn to reliable sources. So where where do we find evidence? Well, we find them in a series of evidence synthesis databases. Oops, excuse me, Uh, evidence synthesis databases. There there are quite a few of these, and I'm sure you know them. Uh, Those are the, I think, kind of the main ones. Uh, There's obviously the Joanna Briggs Institute, I'm not sure if you're associated with that here, some of the universities are. That's specifically for nursing and it provides evidence for practice specifically. And there's a Centre for Reviews and Dissemination at the University of York which is also based at uh, Southampton in the UK too, (coughs) international despite its UK uh, roots and that's a, that, that, that uses a, a certain type of evidence and produces reports um, but the, the gold standard I think, I think you'll agree uh, is, is the Cochrane collaboration which is the longest standing and by far the most rigorous of the methods for generating evidence. Uh, I'd be interested if anybody... Doesn't think that, or disagrees with me, uh, but 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 it seemed to be to be the gold standard because it only uh, synthesises evidence from the most rigorous studies uh, and and not the not the less rigorous studies. Whereas the centre for uh, at York uses different, slightly different sources of, error, of evidence. So I've got some questions for you, uh, we don't have time to take a show of hands, I wouldn't want to embarrass anybody by, by, by doing this, but uh, I warn you, I'm, uh, just you know, think carefully, I'm, lead, I'm leading you on a bit here, I'm setting up a bit of a straw man, uh, you know, would you implement a health intervention for which, for which there was no evidence to support it, um, I'm sure that everybody no, would say, that. I wouldn't do that, I wouldn't do it, I wouldn't do it, I don't think I would do it, uh, would you implement a health intervention where there were demonstrable harms All health interventions have harms, but one where the harms outweighed uh, the the possible benefit. Uh, Would would, would you do that? I I, I hope and I think the answer is no. But um, I'm sorry, I don't want to single people out. But looking around the room, I can also see on your faces, literally, that some people don't agree with me. Uh, And we'll see why in a minute, and I think you know what's coming next. So why do we use face masks, for example? Sorry, I won't look at anybody with a face mask on. Uh, I'll come to the evidence in a minute regarding face masks. I'll just give you a, I'll just give you a heads up it doesn't exist. But um, you know, people use other reasons for wearing, wearing face masks. They say it makes you feel safe. Well, carrying a gun makes people feel safe. I wouldn't advocate that. Uh, it's a signal, it's a solidarity with people suffering from COVID. Well, if you want to show solidarity, wear a band or get a tattoo or something like that. You don't have to wear a face mask. So, uh, as I say, I don't want to be critical or point out to people I'm not trying to undermine people's faith in anything. I just want to share the evidence and what I believe about this. Um, So, anyway, uh, those of you who are interested in face masks, and of course I was exceedingly interested because we were forced to wear them under certain circumstances in the UK... Uh, I rebelled, I only wore one early on, I never wore one again apart from when I was flying because you had to, uh, or get arrested, but uh, I did it under protest, but I thought, well, what is the evidence here? And the evidence at the beginning of the COVID years, um, I refuse to use the word pandemic, but the COVID years uh, was a Cochrane review of 2016, which showed no evidence uh, to support the use of face masks. All face masks, not just the cloth masks, all of them. Uh, no evidence at all. And after, of course, after the uh, COVID years, we have lots more studies, lots more evidence. One very rigorous study, the Dan Mask Study, uh, was published. And that's been accumulated with the accumulating evidence around face masks into uh, the most recent 2023 uh, review of um, physical interventions to interrupt or reduce the spread of respiratory viruses. That means use of face masks. Uh, Led by Tom Jefferson. uh, And... um, published in the Cochrane Review, and I don't know if anybody's been involved in Cochrane Reviewing, I've been involved as a reviewer uh, and, and someone approving Cochrane Reviews, I've never actually carried one out myself, but believe me the system is meticulous uh, and, and, and nothing gets through uh, if there's the slightest doubt about it at all. So what does, uh, what does this say regarding the use of face masks? Well uh, I'll, I'll highlight what it says, it says the pooled results of randomised controlled trials, the highest level of evidence. Uh, which you've already agreed to, because nobody disagreed, did not show a clear reduction in respiratory viral infection. And of course, anybody—I'm not a virologist, but I am a biologist. Anybody who understands viruses knows there's perfectly good virological reasons why these can't work. Viruses are much smaller than the particles, uh, the, the, the the filters that these are supposed to have. And of course, viral particles are absolutely everywhere. This room's full of them. You can find them on top of Mount Everest. So the minute you let any air in, you're breathing in viral particles. Face masks simply cannot deal with that. There was also no clear difference for any kind of surgical masks. People say, ah, what about N25 or P2 respirator masks, which I had to wear when I was flying in Italy, for example. Um, no evidence either, I'm afraid to say. So the whole thing crumbles. Now I'm not saying, I'm not, be careful what I'm saying, I'm not saying face masks don't work. I don't, I don't think they can work for biological reasons, but of course I can't say they don't work, because another set of trials might show that they do. What I'm saying is there is absolutely, absolutely no evidence to support their use, yet these were implemented worldwide. Now you might say, well, okay, what about, you know, okay, fair enough, It's, it's it's a minor intervention, there's no problem wearing a face mask at all. Well, there is. Uh, the quality of breathing uh, you know really declines. I could demonstrate that without a clinical trial by asking someone to run up the stairs wearing a a face mask or even walk up the stairs wearing a face mask and to do the same thing again without it. Uh, You you know yourself the difference is tangible. Any messages that this is not affecting our respiratory system is you know is, is, is wrong and we know that it affects dead space volume and it increases breathing resistance. None of which are good, especially in the vulnerable people to which face masks are are normally aimed. I'll get off face masks in a minute, don't worry, but I've got a few more things to share as well. Other people say, well, there's no harm in them. Uh, No, there's no harm in them at all. They're perfectly uh, perfectly okay, they don't harm people in any way. Uh, We have a, I don't know about Hong Kong, we have a massive problem now in the UK with children being unable to communicate. Because, for in the in the houses where people wore masks twenty-four hours a day, uh, they, they, some children don't recognise their parents. It's absolutely heartbreaking. You know the communication problems between children is, is, is uh, with children is terrible. So maybe no effect that they walk with. there's plenty of effect of, of harms. And I've never seen anything more repulsive than a face mask on a baby, and people forcing them on. I've seen it on airplanes, and babies pulling them off. But anyway. Uh, the thing is, but was, it worth it? You know, was it worth it? Well, uh, comparing the first semester of 2019 pre-Covid with the first semester of the next year, uh, the import of uh, face masks, the cost of importing face masks into Europe alone increased by 1,800% to £14 billion. Pounds. It cost an absolute fortune to do this, and this was supposedly based on evidence. Our waterways are littered in the UK with face masks still, they won't go away, the seas are full of them, uh, they're pulled out by the tonne by divers, uh, fish get tied up in them, birds get them caught in their wings. So as you can see, I'm not very, uh, I'm not very much in favour of face masks. So as I say, if we're really balancing effect against harm, uh, I think there's one, one area where evidence simply wasn't used properly at all. I hope it never happens again. COVID never happens again, but I also hope that, uh, we never go through this nonsense again. Um, Then, of course, you you wouldn't expect me, while I'm on the subject of COVID, to let the vaccines off lightly. Uh, And I'm not an anti-vaxxer, so don't anybody accuse me of being that, but balancing evidence and risk. This is what we're doing all the time. We're trying to say, right, there's the evidence. Is it worth implementing because the risk might be bigger and uh, we, we all know uh, I don't have time to go into vaccine harms uh, but we all know uh, in spades now about the harms certainly that the MRA and COVID vaccines caused, uh, I have to admit to a, not a conflict of interest but skin in the game here, uh, a personal interest in this so that you understand my background uh, you know in case uh, it, it, it influences the way I'm presenting this but after I wrote this talk, after I wrote this talk my 29-year-old son fit as a fiddle had a stroke caused by a blood clot induced by a COVID vaccine. So, you know, it's very, very close to me. Thankfully, fully recovered, but damaged mm-hmm. on his brain. So, you know, uh, this is very real to me, but uh, that's not what drove me writing the, the presentation because I put this together before that happened. It only happened very recently. And, uh, you know, we tend to report what people want to hear rather than what they, they should hear so biggest vaccine rollout ever in the world i don't think there's ever, ever been anything like it with the covid, COVID vaccines i took the t- two doses initially um to enable me to travel that didn't really work very well but that's what, why i did it so i'm not so i'm not an anti-vaxxer uh, but i but i did start to dig into the evidence for this and of course we were told that the vaccines especially if you took two doses were uh, well, initially 100% effective. Nothing's 100% effective. That's philosophically and practically impossible. We were then told it were 94% effective, 90% effective. It's way down to it. You know, it's coming down. It's coming down. But this is based on uh, this is based on uh, relative risk reduction, which of course, in something as uh, low risk as COVID, and it is a very low risk virus. Low risk in terms of death. Uh, Relative risk reductions are meaningless. Relative risk reductions only come into play when you get higher risk. Uh, so, you know, the, the, you know uh, if we look at relative risk, we know that new drug reduced cancer incidence by 50%. In other words, 50% of people who got it and 50% of people who didn't take it, there's a difference of that. But the, you know, the incidence in, in individuals according to the absolute risk ratio is very much smaller. Absolute risk ratios tend to be small. And that's how we should be measuring the efficacy of viruses and anything else that we put in our bodies. Absolute risk, not relative risk. Because when you're in the, if you were in the trenches in the First World War and going over the top, as my grandfather did several times and survived, you weren't worried about how less a risk you had compared to the person next to you, because it didn't matter what the risk was compared with him. What you wanted to know was your risk whether you stuck your head over the top or stayed below, that's what matters. It's the absolute risk to you that matters, not the relative risk next to somebody else. Because they may be reckless, they may have a bigger head, they may not have their helmet up. You know, you you know, you cannot compare your risk with somebody else, uh, even in a high-risk situation like that. It becomes relatively meaningless. So. Um, if we want to look for evidence of the, of the effectiveness that so we can turn to um, a famous uh, anti-vaxxer outlet, I'm joking, this is the, uh, this is the Lancet. Uh, a letter that was published very early in the, uh, in the pandemic based on, sorry I've said it again, In Covid, uh, based on uh, the efficacy and effectiveness of Covid vaccines, uh, the elephant in the room as it was called. And these authors calculated using the available figures at the time the uh, absolute risk reduction of the COVID vaccines and they were small, all of them, rarely reaching 1%. Your risk of infection was reduced around 1% by taking a vaccine. (coughs) Not the risk of death. The risk of death from COVID is about 1% again. So the risk of death is reduced. It hardly registers on the scale by COVID vaccines, except in some very elderly people. I'm not saying they don't work, but in very elderly people, they offer some protection. For the people in this room, and even including an old fellow like me, they offer virtually no protection whatsoever. Those are the facts. I mean, you can argue with them, but those are, those are the numbers, um, and, and and they're uh, they're well known. And we were, we were sold another story based on evidence as such. So you've always got to question the evidence that you're being given. And my criticism of the health professionals, certainly around the world and in my country and in nurses in particular, was that we didn't we didn't question it. we went along with it, and we still tend to go along with some other things that I think we probably shouldn't. anyway, uh, after all that depressing news, uh, what about something a bit more positive? Well, uh, finish off in the, last, in the last five minutes or so. I mean. Randomised controlled trials and looking at evidence the way that I've been looking at it isn't the only way to generate evidence. In fact I think randomized controlled trials are actually quite limited. Randomized controlled trials are about efficacy. They're about how does this drug work compared with the other one? How does the vaccine work compared with the other one? How does a mask compared without a mask? Uh you know, in idealised situations. So you're looking at efficacy with all everything else controlled as much as you can or covariated out or taken into account but that's not really what happens out there in the real world once things get out in the real world things are a little bit different and i think that there's a huge i mean there's there's lots of different possibilities for generating evidence i won't go through them all because i just simply don't have time but there's there's an excellent paper which i can point people to which i presented about a few years ago in in, in mainland china which goes through all the different Possibilities for providing evidence if randomised control trials are not available. But even with randomised control trials, I think we should be looking a great deal more at the concept of pragmatic trials. I'm sure you've heard of them. Um, but pragmatic trials are really real-world testing of what we think works. So it's, it's, the, it's the testing of efficacy in the real world. In fact, this is the real testing of effectiveness. How does something work? When it's, when it's given to doctors and nurses to prescribe and give to people when they're living in all sorts of different circumstances that we can't control because we, we can't run clinical trials all the time and I can't, at the top of that is, is pragmatic trials at the top so you can't see it so pr- pragmatic trials tend to be very low on, on internal Uh, validity, but very high in external validity, whereas explanatory trials, which are the clinical trials that we're all used to, the experiments that are necessary to test drugs, are very highly internally valid, but they don't really apply out in the real world. So I think that we should be looking more to testing our interventions Pragmatically, once we think something works, because this is this is where we this is this is where the as I say the, the rubber hits the the runway or the rubber hits the road or whatever is when we get out there and people uh, people people are living in all sorts of different circumstances. Uh, they're not necessarily taking the drug or doing the intervention the way that they really should do, but that's how it is in the real world. So how how does it work out there? And just in case you think uh, I mean, people may be involved in this, I may be teaching you things you know already. But just in case you're concerned that explanatory, sorry, that pragmatic trials are, are not favoured by, by journals, there's been a huge increase. Uh, this is this is out of date. But there's been a huge increase in the number of um, of, of, of pragmatic trials uh, compared with you know with, with all trials published uh, over over quite a long time. So they're becoming very popular and becoming very um, very meaningful and, uh, as a way to test clinical interventions. So we started just a couple of minutes late. So I, I think I've got us back on time. just, just, to, just to summarise, I'm not trying to undermine the concept of evidence. I'm not trying to be personally critical of anybody who wore a mask or took a vaccine. I took a vaccine. I'm just saying the the, the uh, and we probably weren't to know because we weren't being given was given the the, uh, the uh, all the information. But had we been given all the information, had our governments and. Uh, uh, health promotion organisations and so forth, given us the information properly, we may have come to some different conclusions uh, regarding uh, regarding the management of COVID. And I believe, you're welcome to disagree with me, but not today. Uh, that we that we probably did more harm than good with many of these. So, that's the end of my presentation. I'm going to run out of the door now in case I get grabbed, uh, and I'm just really grateful for you listening to me. Thank you very much. If anybody wants to keep in touch with me, that's my email. If anybody wants to check on my research record, you can scan my ORCID uh, thing there. Uh, if you're really bored and can't sleep, you can follow me on Twitter. And if you want to follow me on WeChat, which an increasing number of people do, you can scan my WeChat. Thank you very much. Thanks, Sally.